0: It is great to be here to worship God together and today we start a new sermon series uh, which will take us through till the beginning of the summer. We'll break it into two parts. Uh, as we st- embark on this new series, what I really want to do for a moment is to just give you an idea of where are we going for the next year because everything builds together. We're we don't just decide, well, let's do this and let's do that. And everything that we do here at So Shore, we're trying to move uh, individually and as families and as a church towards something. So so what does the preaching look like over the next year? Now, of course, this is subject to change, as the Holy Spirit may may come and, and say, you know, I want you to go here or there. We want to be receptive to the leading of the Spirit. But as as best we are able the elders have decided that this is where we hope and we anticipate to go over the next year so we're beginning today with two short series on biblical theology we'll talk a little bit about what that is so for we're going to do three messages on biblical theology from the Torah that is the first five books of the Bible Then we're going to do Biblical Theology from the Former Prophets. Sometimes that's called the historical books, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And these two mini-series that will take us right up to the edge of the summer are really to provide a context, a container, a basket for us for the fall, which we will be looking at the life of David, the rise of David to kingship and we'll be looking verse by verse at that in the fall. In the summer, so between these two series that work together, we're going to be really focusing in on prayer. And we're going to do that by looking at great prayers of the Bible. And then finally, our hope in January, after we take a look at the rise of David through First and Second Samuel, will be to go through the book of Romans. So we're starting today in two mini-series on biblical theology. Which means before we get into it, we have to define, what is, it, what is biblical theology? What, what is it that we're doing? What makes biblical theology different than, say, something else? This is a, a slippery term to define because different people define it in different ways. But this is what we mean by biblical theology here at South Shore. And really, there's three aspects to what we mean. First... Biblical theology is an effort to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ from the whole of biblical revelation. With that in different words. What we're saying is we want to be people that, that embrace the gospel of God's salvation in our life. Biblical theology says that the gospel is not found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John alone or in a few uh, verses in Romans alone or in some kind of formula that says that we are uh, dead in sin, that we uh, give our sin to Christ, he dies in our place, he rises again. And we are forgiven and we will live with him. That's true. All of that is true. And you can find aspects of the gospel in all of those places. But biblical theology says that the whole Bible is God's description of the gospel. If we want to understand the gospel, we want to understand it from the whole of biblical revelation, from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. So secondly, building on this, most basic definition of biblical theology, what we are saying is that each and every part of Scripture has a role to play in constructing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter where you open the Bible. If you open the Bible to that place and you read a passage, God has put that passage in the Bible To teach us something about the gospel of Jesus Christ and so as Christians we want to understand every aspect of the scripture and see in that passage whatever passage it is its unique and specific contribution to our understanding of salvation in Jesus Christ and thirdly which again builds on these first two parts if we are to grasp, then, the fullness of the gospel, and that's very intentionally worded, if we are to grasp not just the gospel, but the fullness of the gospel, the weightiness of the gospel, the glory of the gospel, the bigness of the gospel, the glory of the gospel, that we must continually work to understand any and every passage within the context of the whole Bible. So, this third part, to say it in different words, is to say if we're going to understand the gospel, we need to understand how every piece of scripture fits into the whole Bible. What does this passage have to say? What contribution does it have to make to everything else? This is a massive endeavor. It means that we have to step back from looking at the trees of the forest and see the glory and the beauty of the forest itself to see the big picture. And I really believe in our, our age and stage uh, in, in Canada in 2018 that this is what the church desperately needs is to reconstruct for ourselves the big picture picture of the bible the big picture of the gospel and the wholeness of what god has done from beginning to end so between now and the summer july if we say canada day is the beginning of the summer proper we're going to construct a framework for understanding the full gospel by preaching three biblical theological sermons from the torah that's Ma- uh, sorry genesis exodus leviticus numbers and deuteronomy that's the torah first five books of the Bible and then we're going to take three weeks to take a look at three biblical theological sermons from the former prophets Joshua judges Samuel and Kings and by doing that we're going to take a look at the big picture of this first part of the Bible so that we can begin to understand what God has been doing from creation to kings and why we're doing this is to establish a context for when we're going to zoom in on the life of David in the fall and understand the central role that David plays in constructing a full understanding of the gospel from the Old Testament. Now of course these six sermons are not going to exhaust all the biblical theology of, of these books. But it will give us a start. So with that introduction, would you pray for me? This is... This is exciting. I hope you're excited about it. I hope that that you're you're ready to step back and see the glory of God's Scripture, His Word, what He has done in history and how He's preserved it for us in the Bible. This is a treasure that God has given to us. We all own a copy of it. And now God says, just open it and discover me. That's what we're going to do together. So let's pray to that end. Oh God, We want to know more about who you are and what you've done. We want to know more about the gospel and how you've saved us. We want to know more about about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see the big picture. We want to know how how the whole Bible hangs together. We want to know how every uh, moment in history has been orchestrated by you to glorify you to save us. I pray that you would inflame our hearts for this. Because I know that without, without your supernatural work in our minds, without your supernatural work in our hearts, in our souls, this will just be work without glory. I pray, Lord, that this would be so much more than that, that this would be living water for us. That we would taste and see that you, O oh Lord, are good. Uh, and that the Bible is more precious to us than gold or silver. It is more valuable to us than anything that we uh, might set our minds or hands to in this life. But to take a close look at your word. There is nothing greater There's nothing we desire more to do. Lord, that's my prayer for us. Glorify Yourself. Teach us more about who You are what You've done. I pray You'd even do this through me, for us. In Christ's name. Amen. Where do we start? Where do we start in this adventure of biblical theology? If we're going to understand this book as as one unified work of God, it's really important to see how does the Bible begin? And to see how does the Bible end? Because if this is one unified work, then the beginning and the end bear some relationship to one another. God sets out to tell us something in Genesis and he wraps it up at the end in Revelation. There's a relationship, a, a, a crucial relationship between the beginning and the end. And once we have eyes to see this relationship from beginning to end, then the middle will begin to make a whole lot more sense. One of the challenges for us as Christians is we spend a lot of time opening up to the middle, the middle here, the middle there, the middle everywhere, Uh, and sometimes the middle doesn't seem to hang together. It doesn't seem to bear any relationship to other passages of the middle. Well, do you know what? what keeps everything in the middle together is that which is at the beginning and that which is at the end. And so we need to take a look at the beginning and the end. We need to begin to construct for ourselves a macro structure. All that means is the big picture, the foundation and the outer walls of the Bible. The beginning of the Bible is Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The end of the Bible is Revelation 21 and 22. These four chapters constitute the beginning and the end. I suppose we could have said Genesis and Revelation, but the beginning of Genesis is Genesis 1 and 2, and the end of Revelation is Revelation 21 and 22, which means that the middle of the Bible is everything in between these four chapters, from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20. That's the middle of the Bible, What's the middle of the middle of the Bible? The middle of the middle of the Bible is the life of Jesus Christ. God dropped his son into the middle of time, into the middle of history, into the middle of the Bible. So the middle of the middle is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we read about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus in time and space. What's the middle of the middle of the middle of the Bible? The cross. The middle of the middle of the middle of the Bible is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. All of reality orbits around the cross. It is the center point of all reality when God says, I have, I have something to do, and when God says, I have something to tell you, and when God says, I have something to show you, the middle of the middle of the middle is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, which God foresaw before the foundation of the world, and the ramifications of which last forever into the eternal future. So, so when we're talking about the Bible, this is the most simple way to understand the Bible. We have a beginning Genesis 1 and 2, we have an end, Revelation 21 and 22. We have a middle, everything in between. We have the middle of the middle, which is the life of Christ. And we have the middle of the middle of the middle, which is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross where he unites all things in heaven and on earth in himself by his own blood. Today we're going to explore the beginning and the end of the Bible. Uh, We do a very good job in the church of focusing on the middle of the middle of the middle. But if we don't understand that when we're talking about the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, what we're talking about is exactly that, the middle of the middle of the middle. It it loses something, so what we want to do is contextualize that profound moment in history By looking at the beginning and the end. I am going to read four chapters of the Bible. I'm going to read all of the beginning. I'm going to read all of the end. And and when I just said that, you can respond in one of two ways. You can can groan in your inner spirit and say, what? You're going to what? You're going to read how much scripture? Or you can say, what a precious use of time. I want to remind us what we're about to do. What we're about to do, I'm going to open this book. I'm going to say, this is what God has told us about where everything began. And then I'm going to flip to the end. I'm going to say, this is what God himself has told us about where we are going. Now let me ask you, if I said to you, God has offered to meet with you today and he's going to tell you everything about the beginning and everything about the end how many of you would would make yourself available not just in body but in mind how many of you say i want to know i want to know where we started from the mouth of god i want to know where we're going from the mouth of god when i read this to you it's not me talking to you This is the creator of the universe, the author and perfecter of our faith, who wants to speak. So, I'm going to do something that I, I don't often do. I don't want you to open your Bible, I want you to open your ears to hear the Lord God speak to us. This is the Word of God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form, and it was void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas. God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their kinds, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning. The fourth day. And God said. Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures. And every living creature that moves. With which the waters swarm. According to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and God said be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the sea and let birds multiply on the earth and there was morning evening and there was morning the fifth day and God said And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heaven, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. and The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. There he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold that is in the land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. This is the end of the beginning. Flip to Revelation 21 and you oh don't actually just listen. Sorry. Listen. God has told us about the beginning. Now God will tell us about the end. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Then came one of the seven angels who had taken seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. On the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with a rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. And they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John the one who heard and saw these things and when I heard and saw them I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me but he said to me you must not do that I am a fellow servant with you and of your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book worship God and he said to me do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book The time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. These are the words of God. O oh God, help us to treasure these words, the beginning and the end. That is mostly what I wanted to do today. is to read you the beginning and the end. I'm going to make a few comments about similarities and differences between the beginning and the end without really getting into them that much. But I encourage you to think on these things and to treasure that God and Christ Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To begin, seven similarities between the beginning and the end. In the beginning, we are told that God brings order out of chaos. The earth was formless and empty. It was chaos, and the Spirit of God hovered over the deep. And then we read and God, said, and God said 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 and he brought order from chaos in the end we have just read through genesis 3 to revelation 20 and we see the chaos that is wrought by sin and at the end god says through christ i am making all things new And there is no sea which is a symbol of chaos we introduce chaos into the rest that god created but in the end god will restore order and peace and rest out of the chaos of sin number two in both the beginning and the end we see that God has a special relationship with us men and women we alone are created in the image of God in the beginning let us create man in our image And so God did, male and female, He created us. In the end, we're told that God will dwell with us. He will be our God and we will be His people. He will be our Father, we will be His sons. And that's not a statement of gender, but of position. Number three, in the beginning and the end, God gives us eternal life access to the tree of life it's there before we sin it's there after god makes all things new blessed are they to whom god gives access to the tree of life number four neither in the beginning nor in the end is there a temple because the temple is a temporary paradise in the middle of a sin saturated world the temple is where God meets with those who bear His image perfectly in the person of Christ. But before sin in the beginning and after sin in the end, there is no temple because God is there and we are there and unmediated access to God exists. Number five, neither in the beginning nor in the end is there any sin sin is for the middle God looked at what he had made and he said it is good and in the end God will look at his new creation and say it is gloriously perfect in every way number six Neither in the beginning nor in the end is there any death. Death is not God's perfect intention for us. We die in the middle, but we will be raised unto eternal life to live forever in the end. Neither, number seven, neither in the beginning or the end is there any curse. God looked at everything he made from day one to day six. and He said, it is good. And on day seven, he looked at all that he had made and said, it is very good. In the end, we're told nothing cursed will be there. There will not be a cursed man, woman or child. There will not be a cursed angel. There will not be a cursed uh, animal. There will not be a cursed tree, mountain, stream or star. Everything will be without curse. Why? Because Jesus took the full weight of the curse on Himself in the middle of the middle of the middle. What we learn about these seven similarities is that everything that was good in the beginning will be there in the end it seems like we've lost everything that was good at the beginning and we have definitely lost it for a time but everything that was good at the beginning will be there at the end but i don't want to stop here there's more there are eight differences that i have identified And what I want us to notice about these differences is not only will everything that was good in the beginning be there in the end, but the end is so much better than the beginning. God isn't just taking us back to the beginning. He's taking us forward to a new and better paradise. This is astonishing. This is an amazing claim of the gospel. What we forfeited by sin, God more than gives back to us. Eight differences. In the beginning, God gave us a garden. In the end, God will give us a holy city. If you go back, we're told that God put Adam in the garden. And he said, I want you to work it. I want you to keep it. In other words, cultivate this garden. Uh, maximize its fruitfulness. Help this garden to flourish. And then after the garden, go out to the ends of the earth. And I, I believe there had been no sin to the ends of the universe. All of God's creation. Build something. In the end, God says, you know what? I'll build it. I'll build it. I'm going to build you a garden city. And I'll give it to you. Number two, God did not dwell with humanity in the garden. I don't know if we often notice that. God took the man and put him in the garden. And God would visit from time to time, I suppose. We don't get a lot of information about that, but we know of at least one visit before the fall. God came to Adam and he said to Adam, "This is. I give you everything to eat. I give you dominion over every good thing that I have created. You are my representative in creation. but never. In Genesis one to two are we told that the dwelling place with God of God is with man. Never. But in the end, God will dwell with humanity in the holy city. Just want to read a couple of verses. Revelation 21 verse three. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Repetition. God will dwell with them. He's going to dwell with them. They're going to be his people, and he will be with them. The fulfillment of Emmanuel. There's something greater about the holy city than the garden. God is dwelling. Uh, God's throne room is literally in creation that is the new creation the holy city and the holy city is the throne of god itself the center of the holy city is the throne room of god where god has dwelt forever you never see that until revelation 21 ever not even in genesis 1 and 2 that's a big difference And because God dwells with humanity, He will manifest the fullness of His glory in the new creation. Difference number three is another thing we don't often notice. Humanity, Adam, could hear God in the garden. But humanity will see God in the holy city. That's what makes God invisible—not that He's unseeable, but that no one has been uh, given that opportunity to gaze upon God. We could hear God in the garden, and oh, that was good. But we will see God. That's better. Difference number four. In the beginning, God created light, and He separated the light. From the darkness. He separated. Day. From night. That's in the beginning. But in the end. We're told that all darkness is gone. There is no more darkness. There is no more night. The city. Has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. That proves our previous point that God never manifested the fullness of His glory at the beginning. Because God said, let the sun rule over the day, and let the moon dwell over the, or rule over the night, and let the stars be present for times and seasons. But in the end, we're told, though there will be a sun, though there will be a moon, though there will be stars, we won't see the light from sun, moon, or stars. Why? Because God dwells with us. At the end of 1 Timothy, we're told that God dwells in unapproachable light. God is bringing the fullness of his light into his new creation. And, and when you look up into outer space on a night sky, clear night sky today, you see darkness. But when God recreates this universe, he's going to fill the expanse of the universe with the unapproachable light of his glory. That is better. And wherever we go, we'll be in the unapproachable light of God, which says something about us. We are not fit. I don't know about Adam, but it seems as though not even he was fit in his human constitution to approach God in his transcendent glory, in his unapproachable light. But God is so recreating us. We've talked about this. By resurrection from the dead to be fit to walk unharmed into the light that until that time is unapproachable. And it's in that unapproachable light that fills the new creation that we will see God. Number five. In the beginning, man was married to woman. And that's good. But in the end, man and woman Will be married to God. Can you conceive of that? The Alpha and the Omega, the Creator of all things, the Sustainer of all things, the all powerful God says, I will make for myself a bride. And when we say that John saw the bride of the Lamb coming down out of heaven and he sees a city, What he sees is the throne room of God. But more than that, what he sees is this uh, new Jerusalem, this holy city coming down, populated by you and me, men, women, who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb to be His bride. We will be married to God through Christ. And this is the other thing that just astounds astounds me. Again, it goes back to resurrected glory. Uh, A human being cannot marry anything or anyone but another human being. We cannot marry an animal or a tree. Because we have to marry among like kinds. Think about how profound that is. If we are to be married to God, we are going to be of like kind with God? We don't become God. But when we see our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, in His glory, full deified glory. Deified means unveiled Godness. We will be like Him. To what? Have you meditated on that? will be like god peter says that we will be partakers of the divine nature we use the word glorification Do you know another english word that means exactly the same thing is deification to become godlike we will not become father son or spirit we will not become god we will not become creator sustainer redeemer but we will be married to god and we will be made like him that's big to be married to God is so much greater than to be married man to woman. number six Adam was charged to guard the garden Adam uh, God put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. another word for keep it is to guard it. In Genesis 3, we were told that Satan in the form of a serpent came into the garden. Adam should have stomped on the serpent's head. Guard the garden. What we're told about the holy city is the gates will be open and nothing cursed will come in. There's no guarding anymore. For every cursed thing, everything, threat against God's power dominion and glory will be consigned to the lake of fire no threat eternal security in Christ no fear no threat no guarding it's better no chance for a second fall number 7 there was a singularity of culture in the garden. Now I imagine that if, if time had uh, allowed, perhaps uh, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve would have multiplied into beautiful cultures. Nevertheless, in the beginning, there was a singularity. There was one culture. But what we're told is God is not taking us back to a uniformed culture. There will be a plurality of cultures In the holy city. This is really important for our witness. We don't impose our culture on other cultures when we share the gospel. We show how God can redeem that culture, how God can turn that culture into a culture of glory. And and we read about this in Revelation 21 24 to 26. By its light the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. They will bring their glory into it. The glory and the honor of the nations included in this glory and honor is the cultures of the nations. And so when we're in this new place it's going to be so rich and diverse in culture. African culture and Chinese culture. Canadian culture and South American culture, and we'll all be worshiping in different languages and different songs and different dances with different food and preferences and dress and attire and everything that is unique about us will all be brought under the headship of Christ. Finally, there was no knowledge of good and evil in the garden. That was good. In the end, though, everyone will know the exclusive goodness of God and the universal evil of men and women. There is no one in the holy city at the end who could say, I am good, or I have arrived because of my goodness. Every one of us will say, God alone is good. God is good, infinitely good. And we were evil, but God has made us new. God has saved us. That's better. What do we learn from this comparative study? As I said, everything that was good in the beginning will be there in the end. But we're not going back to Eden. We are going forward to an even greater reality. The new Jerusalem, the holy city, surpasses the glory of Eden. Which tells us something about the middle of the Bible. I'm going to leave this challenge with you. There is something about the middle that was necessary to get us from the beginning to the end it has been a lot of pain in the middle a lot of sin a lot of evil a lot of death we all feel that very very intimately don't we In the middle of the middle of the middle, Jesus Christ felt the fullness of evil, sin, and death. And we might be inclined to cry out and say, Why, O God, would You take us through the middle? Why would You send Your Son to die in the middle of the middle of the middle of what on the ends is so good? Was there no other way? And when you are in the midst of your sin and your grief and your pain and your struggles, won't you cry out and say, why, oh God, am I caught in this middle? Was there's no other way. But there is something certain that we are going from beginning to end through the middle which means that God has a purpose for the middle, all of the pain, all of the evil, all of the sin, all of the death. Serves some function to, give, to get us from the beginning to the end. Now, What I am not saying is that God is the author of evil. That God has caused our sin or is responsible for it. Or that he delights in death and wickedness. God doesn't tempt us to sin. But what I am saying is, along with Joseph, at the end of Genesis, what we intended for evil, God intended for good. We bear the responsibility for the evil, the sin, the pain, and the death of the middle. Those are intentions. But God intended the middle for good. And one day, we will taste the glory of the end. And we, with all the saints, will fall before the throne of God and gazing at Him face to face, we will say, it was worth it. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray for us. Give us a vision for your work at your glory. I pray that your word will have sunk deep into our heart.